G'day, my name's Christian. I've quit my corporate job so I can spend more time with my daughters and have amazing chats with regular people in Sydney because life's too short not to do something you love. I hope you enjoy my podcast. So I'm pretty pumped about uh, this next celebrity passenger, Mr. Jim Maxwell, ABC cricket commentator, and has been doing that for a long time. Just a little bit excited about this, and uh, pretty grateful to to Nathan for being able to organise this at such short notice, especially a few days before the Adelaide Test. First test against India. And uh, I'm just waiting here at Jim's place, just here in Sydney, ready to take him for an hour and a half drive. I'll just send him a quick message saying, look, I'm just here. Take your time. But I'm a little bit excited about it. I can't wait to understand how Jim got into being a commentator, his life, the journey that he's taken to get him where he is today. Heavily associated with the Primary Club of Australia. And I'll get Jim to explain what the Primary Club of Australia is all about. as it's a charity that raises money for underprivileged and disadvantaged children. And myself and a few mates, Nath, Damien, Ewan, Starkey, Phil, Andy, Rob, the South Africans, Peach, Horse, Flea, Incy, Jamie, Chris and a whole heap of other lads just uh, get together to have a, a game of cricket. We still love the game of cricket, some more so than others, especially after me having categorically the worst game of cricket I've ever had in my life the week before. We won't go into too much detail about that. Suffice to say, I had a lot of time to write the match report while watching all my teammates put on the runs. We fell just short, but that's okay. So super excited about today's interview with Jim. I'll be dropping him at the Dudley, the Lord Dudley. Drop in there after the interview. He's got a, a lunch on this afternoon before he heads to Adelaide for the Adelaide Test to work alongside these fellow commentators, people like Brett Sprigg, Spriggy's brother, all the way over there in WA. He'll be listening to this podcast, so g'day Spriggy, Langers, Starkey, Skipper, Fabulous, Big Puff, they all know who they are, I won't forget the big nose, respectfully so, he's got a big, a big honker on him. But he's a champion lad. So just waiting for Jim. And then we'll get this uh, interview underway. I'm going to stop at some point and get a photo with Jim. I've even dressed up for this today. Suit, pants and a, and a shirt. So pretty excited about this. I'll just jump out of the car and wait for Jim. There he is. Hello, Jim. Hello, sir. You're well. I'm very well. How are you going? Not bad. You, 
interesting number plate. That's not bad, is it? Right, let me turn my phone off. <laughs> I was doing a little bit of preamble before you got in the car. All right, okay. Now, just to introduce those people, I've just letting everybody know that uh, this is my podcast, the Aussie Uber podcast. Mm-hmm. And what we'll do is we'll just go for a bit of a drive around Sydney. Sure. Now, are you going to the are you coming back here before the Dudley? No, no, no. Up there. Okay, uh, so we'll get you to the they're Dudley. Not, they're not uh, starting until 2 o'clock, but, you know, whatever. We'll work our way through it. They'll, they'll be up there having a drink before that, I would imagine. But... Well, if we get there a few minutes early, it won't matter, will it? No. Lovely, okay. Um, not a bad view you've got there. It's good, yeah. It's How long have you been spot. here for? Um, I've been here for... 11 years. My mother owned the place and she died in 2007. So uh, I used to live down the road, but um, things happen in your life and uh, relationships <laughs> go sour. They do, mate. So I'm, that I'm... place was sold and one thing and another. And so I ended up here after mum died and fixed it up and then I got remarried and so there that's the scene beautiful well I I lived in Paddington just around the corner for nine years up until two months ago where are you now just in uh, in Waverley very very close to the Waverley Oval oh it's a nice spot there it is a beautiful spot there so um taxpayers money well (laughs) they're not missing out there that's for sure but uh we'll go for a bit of a drive maybe head towards Watson's Bay whatever yeah yeah you're 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 guarding the, the ship. That's it. Audio. Now, Jim, where did you start? Where did you grow up? I grew up in um, Bellevue Hill, for the most part. And where did you go to school? I went to Cranbrook School, and then um, yeah, Bellevue Hill, um, Rose Bay, whatever part of the world you call it. I think they call it Bellevue Hill. Yeah, it's still Bellevue I went there. My father and his brothers went there and my grandfather was a founder of the school. So I didn't, don't think I had much choice and my two boys went there. So it, we're kind of stuck on the place. Is the Maxwell name anywhere associated with the school as founders? Yeah, yeah, yeah. My grandfather was um, on the first school council and was, I think, treasurer. One of my best friends in Adelaide, James Hooper, his grandfather, he he went to Poultney Old Scholars. Oh, Poultney, I've heard of that. Yeah, which Gary O'Keefe has, a, has, a, has an association with. <laughs> and uh, mm. his grandfather has a, an oval named after him, so we played many a game of cricket yeah. at Hooper Oval. I don't uh-huh. think I've ever shown it the respect it probably deserved because I wasn't out there long enough. But uh, it's So you're from Adelaide? I am from Adelaide, yes. Yes, it's a famous place. My friend uh, Peter Walsh used to call it the cemetery with lights. <laughs> He's probably not far from the truth. Mm. I you'll... think it's a great place to visit, but living there is a bit incestuous. Well, it is, and that's why I got out 17 years ago, and I've been in Sydney ever since. But, very, uh, very smart idea. Yeah, now you're heading to Adelaide this week. I'm Tomorrow I'm going down there to catch up with a few people before the test starts on Thursday. Before the test? Well, we'll get to the test in a little bit. But So you grew up here in Sydney? Yep, yep. Bellevue and Hill and all that area there. Days of innocence, wandering around playing cowboys and Indians and kicking a football and whatever else was going at the time. It was a, a very simple, uncomplicated life with um, yeah, not a lot, a lot of expectation. We just had, we just had fun. What did, what did mum and dad do? My father was a lawyer. My mother was um, an academic who stopped working once she uh, had me, I think. That was the way it was in those days. And no siblings? No. No? No, no, just me. 
Yeah. So post school, where did you when you when you got to high school, when you finished high school, what did you decide you wanted to do? I, I sort of decided I wanted to do to do what I'm doing now, um, but it took a while to get there. So I started applying for traineeships. My second last year, Peter Mears actually got the one I applied for, and he'd been at Cranbrook. Um, and then I had another crack after I left school. I can't remember who got that. Um, I don't think that person's. It stayed long at the ABC, you didn't like it. Uh, what was it about the ABC that you liked, though? Well, it was an o- opportunity. That, that was a way of getting into cricket broadcasting, and I fancied the idea of being a cricket commentator. Did you play cricket as a lad? I played at school, um, yeah. How did you go? What was, your, what was the specialty? Oh, I used to bat and bowl a bit of... Nonsense, straight breaks, whatever. But um, you know, I played in the eight eight teams and first for a few years. I was captain in the last year, so I, I had an enjoyable time without ever being any more than a a part to contributor to the success of the team. But I did like captaining teams, which I had the chance to do through the age groups. So. And did your did your dad and grandparent and grandfather play? My dad used to play with Ian Zengari. Um, oh wow! I think he would admit that he was not a particularly good cricketer, but um, he, he enjoyed being involved. And um, his uh, elder brother was a good cricketer. He played for Paddington um, for a few years, way back. Um, Hamilton, Ham Maxwell, um, and then he had a son who was quite a good cricketer too. But um, yeah. There's not a, not a lot of cricket there, although I subsequently found, having got involved with the Eastern Suburbs Cricket Club, but that my great uncle on the other side, his name was Willie Trickett, he played in the very first team that Eastern Suburbs then Waverley fielded in the competition in 1894-5. That's quite a name, Willie Trickett, isn't it? Willie Trickett. He went to the Boer War and he didn't come back, poor bloke. Right, okay. So um, he was—he would have been at Sydney Grammar, and then you know was making his way in life and so on. But um, yeah, that didn't happen. So, what what attempt was it that you actually managed to get the job at the ABC? It was the third third attempt. If you hadn't made it, then do you think you would have kept having a go? I think the opportunities um, would have been less frequent. Um, there weren't too many. That was 1972 into 1973 when I got to the job. So there were only two or three more traineeships offered until the system became redundant. And, you know, fellas like Peter Longman, Bob Vincent and David Morrow sort of came in in a slightly different way after me. Right. Um, but the kind of cadetship thing was only kept for news and current affairs it, it wasn't retained as much in sport well, more sparingly and occasionally put it that way were you, were you, were you excited to get the job when, oh, they, yeah. when they when they rang you and said or well, how did they let you know I got a letter <laughs> yeah. things are a bit different now aren't they mm, quite uh, how long after that did you do your first game well I started there on the 1st of April did you not think that wasn't the April Fool's well, joke? Yeah, it, it, it was was a bit potentially ominous, I suppose. But uh, 
uh, yeah, so I, I was lucky because most trainees in those days uh, spent a fair bit of time observing other people do their stuff uh, and I did a bit of that but because I'd done a cricket audition at the SCG sitting up the back of the, uh, the Noble Stand during a Pakistan-Australia test match I think they sort of won the argument when they got down to the last couple so for that reason, when the next cricket season started, I was allowed, given the, the, the privilege, um, however you want to describe it, of um, going on the radio to do commentary of the New South Wales versus New Zealand game alongside the, uh, the legendary Alan McGilvray. So I was fortunate to get a, a, an early showing on... Um, live coverage of sport. Who, who was in that uh, New South Wales team of note at that time? 1973. My goodness. <laughs> We're taking um, it back a few years. Who was in the New South Wales team then? Well, David Colley would have been there. Doug Walters would have been um, around. Ian, Ian Davis, I suspect. He would have been playing... Um, Rick McCosker, maybe he was coming. Yeah, he may maybe just after just, that, just on the scene in. at the time. Yes, he. I think he came in. Um, that's sort of the back end of that season, going into the next, and then scored a pile of runs, batting um, at number three, and he was picked to open in the Test match, and the rest is history, so to speak. I think Alan Turner may still have been around. In those days, yes. If I go back, um, who else was um, around? God, my my memory's hazy. I know Michael Shrimpton (laughs) scored 100 for New Zealand in that game. They dropped him about four times. I do remember that. And New Zealand had some pretty good players back in, in that era. They were starting to emerge because it was just after that that we sort of re recognized them as a test-playing nation, having ignored them since 1945's two-day test match when they got scrubbed badly and I think felt embarrassed. So why, why, why were they not recognised for such a long period of time, though? Depends who you listen to. If you listen to, the, to my friends in New Zealand, they say oh, it was because New Zealand was so embarrassed they thought uh, playing test cricket against Australia could could continue to be embarrassing so we only played kind of A-team games against them we used to send teams over there but they weren't test matches and yet they were playing test cricket against every everyone else at the time so eventually 73-74 it sort of came around and maybe um, Australia was complicit in that and uh, you might recall that um, apart from the recognition that came with that series, 73-4, home and away, and they won a game in Christchurch, was um, their inclusion in the um, domestic one-day competition, which they won in the first two years. So it, 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 it's a bit of history these days, looking back, but that's what happened. What advice were you given as a, as a commentator? You know, your first game of cricket Australia... 
or the New South Wales versus New Zealand, what advice have you given when trying to portray what's going on out there in the field? Or is that just something you adopted and adapted to as you went? I don't think I was given much advice other than to um, you know, be mindful of giving the score and sticking to the facts. It was, it was fairly serious in those days. Uh, you deferred to your expert commentator at the end of the over. It wasn't the informality of the conversations that we have today. Uh, it was it was a pretty stiff business. So um, being you know a twenty two year old at the time, twenty three, um, I um, I felt a, you know, a little bit intimidated in the environment. So I I, I went carefully and, and and stuck to the basics, as they say. But eventually, um, Alan McGilvray when I asked, uh, gave me advice, and uh, the advice that sticks with me is um, copy technique and develop your own style. So, um, have you always had that principle I'm I'm stuck to? Yeah, nice. Have you always had the same voice? I mean, has your voice changed? No, no, my voice is uh, was much lighter. Much like I mean, respectfully so. I mean, I, I've, yeah. I've heard you over the course of oh, the better part of 30-odd years, mm. and you, you have a very distinct voice, which is what I think is mm. quite attractive to those listening to the game. Well, it's, it, it's important in a number of ways that your voice is distinctive. Otherwise, you tend to be likened to everyone else who's on the radio. Yeah, that is true. That's why you know, people like John Harlan <laughs> we're so distinctive. And of course, he was very, very good because he was a, a poet, a lyricist. But and McGilvray too had a, a sort of a softly spoken, intimate style of broadcasting, and that was a, a bit furry around the, the cigarettes, I guess, <laughs> um, because uh, he used to smoke a few of those. That was the way in those days. Did you smoke back then? I okay, yeah, I, I was I was more of the OP smoker, you know, we used to call it. Um, but, and it was also in an era when a, a packet of fags was the same price as a beer. So it was affordable. Well, you wouldn't want to be smoking today. You'd um, well, you burn a hole you in your pocket. You wouldn't drink if it was the same cost as a pack of cigarettes today either. Well, you, you drink selectively, I suppose. <laughs> uh, yes, even drinking drinking in the, in the pubs these days seems to be far more expensive relatively than it, do, it was in the days when we used to go to the old Wallara with our Qantas bag and sit in the corner and um, you know put one <laughs> glass in for every two that we drank so that we could have a few glasses back at the place where we were renting <laughs> yeah I uh, remember that your first international who was that between uh, well other than that New Zealand game but did they, um, they class that as an international New South Wales oh, well, New Zealand it, not, not a test match, obviously. No. No, I kept sort of beavering away um, in that period. We used to do Sheffield Shield on the radio during the week as well as the weekend. So there were opportunities. But um, test doing test cricket, of course, was what, what everyone was hoping to get a crack at. And uh, my opportunity came in 1977, Pakistan and Australia in Sydney. So, what was that, uh, two and a half, uh, no, three and a, three and a, three and a half, four years later. 
So, you know, I served a little bit of an apprenticeship. And, you know, there are only so many people who are ever going to go on air doing a test match because there was always McGilvray, the overseas bloke, and then one other, <laughs> um, which moved around the States in those days. They yeah. tended to do it on that basis. So I got, I got the gig in, um, that would have been late January, February 1973, before they went to the West Indies. And then, um, did you tra- sorry, 1977. Did you travel yeah. with them each time? I'm getting, I'm getting myself confused. 1977 was before the centenary test, of course. Um, and I went down to watch that, but I wasn't, wasn't working on it. So I, I did that test in 1977, and then for the next couple of years, I got an, the odd test match here and there when they were playing in Sydney, England, and in India during World Series cricket. Right, okay. So I, I, I wasn't doing it regularly until 1981, yeah. When you started doing it regularly, I mean, you, there's, yeah, you, you've now have nearly eight, nine years into your career. Uh, did you travel with the team when they when they went overseas? No, not in those days. McGilvray was still the the number one person. Uh, although I, I did get the chance when there was a change of uh, management leadership at the at the ABC Sports Department, a guy called Derek White came in and uh, he started making a few decisions about various people and jobs and so on and in 1983 I got to go to the World Cup in England which was a a, a tremendous sort of baptism of touring uh, given that it wasn't long after World Series cricket and the establishment had got together so there was still a a little bit of lingering attitude between those that went to Packer and those that stayed and what were your views on that at the time? Oh, well, I I, I thought initially what Packer was on about... Oh, excuse me, who's this? No one I know, so I'll leave that alone. But, um, yeah, I, I think initially the feeling was, mm, uh, unless he gets the grounds, um, he's going to struggle to uh, get the game across. But, in fact, um, he ended up with some pretty good cricket on these drop-in greenhouse pitches they had in the first year in the Gloucester Park, the showground, they were all pretty good venues as it turned out, but once the floodgates opened the following year when Neville ran the Premier of New South Wales, allowed them to own the SCG, um, things started to hum, and um, the quality of the cricket was good, but you know, Kerry Packer, I'm sure, didn't want to be running his cricket show the longer term he wanted the television rights yeah. which of course was the upshot of it all when they settled as he was offering a lot more money to Cricket Australia than the ABC could have managed to do and um, I don't think um, the leadership of Cricket Australia knew what their, their product their game was worth because uh, they gave him everything. I was about to say, do you think the they, they gave away the, uh, the the baby and the bathwater at the same time? Well, they gave away the merchandising and marketing rights to the game, as well as the TV rights. And uh, I don't think they realised for some years um, what largesse they'd given to Packer. Um, and apart from you know the opportunity of doing cricket, which was uh, for him at the time 
with a 30% requirement of Australian content uh, in programming, a, a much cheaper alternative than um, making up the Sullivans or something like that. So Kerry um, <laughs> won ha- quite handsomely out of that deal. Um, and, and that's what he wanted from the start. It's the only reason he, he ran this uh, event in competition with the establishment. Who, who is who is the, the the cricketer of the moment in Australia at that time? Who who is starring? Oh well, there was there was Lily and Marsh, and uh, Lily and Marsh, Jeff Thompson, and uh, was around, but he was sort of on the fringe of it. He didn't end up going to World Series cricket because um, he was enticed. You might remember was four IP threw all his money at him. To stay, um, and yeah, there were there were lots of lots of good cricketers around the the whole camp and World Series. The West Indies being such a dominant force, and Tony Tony Gregg with the um, English team, Alan Knott was was still going strong at that stage. So um, yeah, there were plenty of good cricketers around. Gregg and Chapel, you know, they they were they were going well. What, what's yeah. it like to watch the likes of Lillian Marsh and those two working together and those, you know, Greg and Ian Chappell, you know, when these players are at their prime? Oh, Lily was a, a central figure to the success of Australia and the look of the game. Uh, he was, as so often thrown about, an iconic cricketing figure because of his personality and his brilliance as a, as a fast bowler. So... Um, Yes, that was a, a big combo. And, and again, um, World Series promoted these players and these matches far better than Cricket Australia had ever done. It was, they sort of took it all a bit for, for granted and got the easy money from Benson and Hedges on the sponsorship. And um, that's why they sort of undersold the game for so long until someone gave them a rocket. Um, and um, it still took a while after that before things improved in terms of uh, promoting the game and rewarding the players. In fact, it took another 15 years before the players got the reward that they deserved from the game. Were you commentating when uh, Australia bowled the underarm delivery to the, to the game with I, New Zealand? I wasn't there that day. I was actually playing cricket and we went up to the forward hand uh, to have a drink and we had a television there wasn't one in the pub we had one perched on top of a car and we were watching this on top of a car yeah on top of a car outside and we were watching this ridiculous thing unfold uh, total aberration from Greg which he would admit to subsequently uh, he just lost it completely lost it so um, as they say in New Zealand in you know, ret- retrospect, that incident probably did more to promote interest in cricket than anything else that happened. So a silver lining, I guess. That was the silver lining. And uh, the New Zealand Prime Minister, uh, Piggy Muldoon, Robert Muldoon, <laughs> he added a bit of petrol to it all by you know saying, now we know why the Australians wear yellow. <laughs> yeah, so it. that kept it going. But what I do remember is... It, it wasn't the last game of the series, and they came up to Sydney a couple of days later, 
and uh, everyone expected the crowd to be giving the raspberry to the Australian team and to Greg Chapel. But in fact, when they came on the ground, they got a huge cheer. I, I think that was the reaction after a couple of those people said, well, he, he made a mistake, but come on, this is the Australian is, team. Is Let's Australia. get behind them. That's it. That's um, it. So as far as the Australians are concerned, yes. It uh, was an, an unfortunate thing, but it was within the rules, of course, the laws of the game. Did they, they change the law after that? Or they, they did. Just, or it was just they did. They, the they did actually. Yeah, yeah, they wrote it, wrote it in the laws that you couldn't bowl underarm. But at that time, it, it was, was just well ex- the... it was just accepted that in the spirit of the game, no one would dare to do it. When you travelled, when you started travelling with the the team. Mm. And you, you went to places like England and the West Indies and South Africa and the like. Mm. Uh, what's your favourite location for commentating? To look out across the ground, what's your favourite location? Oh, well, you know, when you go to Lords, you're at the spiritual home of the game, I suppose. And, and, and just now the, you sound like Nathan. Just the, yeah, the, the, the mere fact that you're looking across a ground that slopes eight feet from one side to the other is a, a, a little little bit unusual um, but when you look well in those days um, when I first went to Lords we, were in the, we worked in the pavilion that's where the broadcast box was so you look down towards the nursery and, but now you look back it's probably a better view from that viewpoint looking back towards the pavilion um, but it, it's just that sense of history that is wrapped around um, Lords that makes it um place to be but you know there are other the more attractive grounds if you think of Newlands and Cape Town with a backdrop of the mountain um, Adelaide Oval Adelaide Oval uh, yes look even the SCG with its sense of history through the members and the ladies pavilion I mean the SCG is the only cricket ground in Australia that still has dressing rooms that were occupied by Trumpet Grace and Bradman every other ground's been um renovated and whatever you want to call it to the point where it doesn't have the same heritage and history history yeah yeah and and that's a big thing in your view the greatest english batsman and bowler that you've seen in your time of commentating greatest english batsman i tell you kevin peterson is pretty close to being the best i've seen no there'd be some that would say he's not exactly english well, they would, but he, he, he played for England, so, I mean, that's that argument out the window. <laughs> I, know, I know it's out the window, you know, Jim. Look, but let's, uh... face it, let's face it, a lot of people have, have played for, for a country having been born in another country. You could name some Australians as well, I suppose, but yeah. it happens more in England than uh, in any other. That's, that, that's the, the, the legacy of empire. Yeah, well, <laughs> again, you sound you sound like Nathan, Andy, and Rob. Obviously, at oh, the moment, yeah. Rob's overseas in uh, in, in Rob Africa Stevenson, somewhere. Yes, yes. Yeah, he's the, uh, the, the he's the good a good man. He, Last man stands. He, and all of that. he is, yeah, and that's yeah. the comp we still play with the with the lads. But uh, oh, good. He's good. Uh, he's going strong over there at the moment. So, quick shout out to him. But uh, yes. Uh, okay, as a bowler, I mean, Botham, to to watch Botham come steaming in. Yeah, Botham was one of the most exciting cricket as England has ever produced. I mean, he played more like an Australian than an Englishman, you could argue. And of recent times? Uh, oh, recent times, I mean, the, the bowling of Anderson in particular and also Broad has, has been a very skillful. 
Um, Derek Underwood was one of their best because he was unique bowling what he bowled. Um, I think um, think back. Um, hmm. Yeah, I, th- I think it's hard to go past it as far as bowlers are concerned. Uh, and Anderson in particular and, and Broad not far behind him. Just the their durability, their longevity uh, are remarkable, particularly Anderson who's played for so long without sustaining any uh, career-threatening injury. So we'll go through the teams because that way we'll only do the batsman and the bowler that comes to mind for each of the countries. Uh, yep. We won't go through past and past and now. We'll just go through the whole of time that you can think. What about India? Well, India's had uh, Gavaskar and Tendulkar and now Kohli when it comes to batting. And they've had a brilliant all-rounder called Kapil Dev. Um, but they've had you know, many exciting cricketers going back to their spinners, Beatty, Prasanna and Chandler Seker. And... Uh, Batsmen like the Nawab of Patati with Wadeka Vishwanath Azruddin. Um, I'm sure I've left someone out there, but Gavaskar was certainly uh, the preeminent champion player of that era. And now we've seen the extraordinary skill of Sachin Tendulkar and Virat College probably going to. Go, them all. go past all of them, yes. There, there's something about Virat Kohli, though. I mean, he's just so exciting to watch. Yeah, yeah. He's a, he's a dynamic cricketer. And not only skillful, but kind of exhilarating because of the way he plays. So those, those Indian names, they just rolled off your tongue. Do you ever oh, yeah. get to a point where you're sitting in the commentary box and you get tongue-tied with one of the names? Oh, I'm sure. Um, that, it's inevitable. <laughs> It's like putting your foot in your mouth. It's, when you do, you've got to find ways to extract it. Unfortunately, that's something I do quite a lot, Jim. Yes, but the thing, as you get older, uh, you, you wear any embarrassment very, very quickly Absolutely. and move on Absolutely. rather than and let it chew your brain out. Uh, Pakistan. What about Pakistan? Well, Imran Khan is, uh, yep. without doubt, the, the most exceptional all-round leader captain that comes to mind when you talk about Pakistan. You talk about his leadership and the batting of Javed Meandad. He was an extraordinarily good player and feisty with it as uh, the kick up the bum thing with Lily and Perth demonstrated. Yeah, that's right. Uh, very, very much respected by the Australians, by everyone, because of his skill. But you know, they've had a, a lot of very, very good players. Into Marmal Huck. His batting. Uh, Asif Iqbal is another one I, I, I remember fondly, uh, as well as, well, I can go back. I remember seeing Hanif Muhammad when he came to Australia, and uh, he was a pretty good player. We never saw enough of him at that time. We didn't play much cricket against Pakistan. And um, his brother Mushtaq, another fine player, Saeed Anwar. Recent years, I'm sure I've left somebody out of that with Wazam Akram and Wako Yunus's bowling um, and uh, Abdul Qadi's wrist spin. That was um, that was always worth watching. Yeah. What about South Africa? Well, South Africa um, takes me back to my uh, early days of, of watching cricket when they were part of the show 
prior to being kicked out of international cricket and uh, the side that came here in 63-4 it had Graham Pollock and Peter Pollock Colin Bland and Trevor Goddard, Eddie Barlow there were some very good cricketers in that team, they should have won that series they just didn't quite have the conviction of, 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 about what they were up, up, up to away from home but uh, we saw within a couple of years how strong that team became when they smashed Australia in two series. But Graham Pollock's one of the greatest batsmen I've ever seen. A wide stance, left-hander, his judgment of length, and his, you know, just his ability to reach the ball and put it away. Uh, he, he was superb. So I have, a, I have a soft spot for South Africa because of those years and Colin Bland's remarkable fielding and the accuracy of his throwing all the time. A bit like Jonty Rhodes, obviously, you know, he was uh, as a fielder. Oh, well, later, later on, later yeah. On, yeah. But no, no, Bland was different to Rhodes. Rhodes was a jack-in-a-box and all over the place within 30, 40 yards of the wicket. Bland was either on that, you know, the sort of infield. But he spent a lot of the time in those days, that series... He was down in front of the hill, a third man. And yeah, they used to have a third man in those days. <laughs> and uh, they used to give him a raspberry every time he threw the ball other than bang over the bales to Johnny Waite. Uh, he had a bullet-like arm as some suffered from uh, trying to take him on in the covers. But he was also a very good batsman. He got better and better as the, as the series went. If he was around, I can assure you, he'd be fielding at third man if Nathan was bowling. <laughs> now, he'd be fielding on the other side of the fence, Nathan, but um, sorry. No, it's, That's unkind. No, it is unkind, but it's also very bloody true. <laughs> well, uh, he's injury prone. Oh, come on. He's got to get fit. He's well, having too many children. Well, he is getting too many children. That is for sure. So, uh, little... <laughs> anyway. Uh, so that's the old South Africa. The new South Africa... Is, a, is another story, and uh, you know, Dale Stone, without doubt, has been one of the uh, great fast bowlers of the day, and uh, you've got to say, A.B. de Villiers' batting is oh, yeah. as good as any batting you, you'd ever want to see when he's in flow. Uh, he's, a, he's remarkable. Um, Him and Gilchrist just have that same, I guess, cavalier... Well, they've got kind of the hand-eye coordination, quick hands, all, all the things that make... Uh, batsmen electric to watch when they're going and, and particularly using the weapons they have today yeah uh, they're very destructive the grounds are small enough but with these bats they're tiny sometimes uh, what about the West Indies well the West Indies sobers of course he's without um, without peers an all-rounder and a batsman I mean he's one of the greatest batsmen the game's ever seen there's no doubt about it but the fact that he could uh, take the new ball and then bowl finger or wrist spin, uh, yeah, he, he's the greatest all-round cricketer the game has ever seen, by, by a long way. But despite the achievements of someone like Jacques Callis, he didn't have the presence of a Sobers, uh, nor the skill. But um, you know, around that group, there was you know, Wes, Wes Hall, um, Rowan Canai, Lance Gibbs going way back, and there's, there's just been a production line up until... Uh, the West Indies lost the plot about 10 years ago. Um, Clive, Clive Lloyd, Viv Richards, uh, Gordon Greenwich and Haynes. Holding. Uh, all their fast bowling. Yeah. Holding, Roberts, Garner, Marshall. Um, yeah, pretty good. 
do you uh, do you think the West Indies will come back from that? Uh, they, not, I mean, they're getting absolutely pumped at the moment. Not Murray, no. No, I think I think cricket was a way out for them for a long while, but the, the, the world's changed, um, and it strikes me that because of the lack of leadership to a large extent and just the geographical uh, nature of the, the West Indies, which only exists as a cricket team, nothing else. It's not a political federation. And it, it needed uh, the leadership of, um, well, Frank Worrell in particular, to pull it all together. Yeah. And now it's all disparate and parochial. So, um, unfortunately, without the the proper leadership in place it's just going to be a bit of a T20 factory and occasionally they'll stick their head up in a test match maybe in the one day stuff but um, it's not going very well I'm afraid which is a pity because I'm sure they can still produce some very good cricketers but actually producing a cricket team that's consistently successful I can't I can't see that I can't see that happening now, I need to ask you a question. If where England's concerned, uh, Scotland. If Scotland, is that a part of England? And the reason I ask that is Well, it's because, part of the United Kingdom. Well, um, okay. So, you and Robertson, one of our, our, oh, yes, our, yes. our teammates, yeah, 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 yeah. he'll put his England hat on. Yet, when Scotland's going well, he'll put his Scottish hat on. So, oh, well. the likes of Andy, Andy Wildblood, Nathan Ray, you and Robertson... They're all going to say that England, obviously, are the best team going around. But we've covered those teams so far with those players. What about Australia? Australian players that you've seen mm. in your time. Where, who, who ranks amongst your favourites? Well, in, in terms of their impact on the game, I mean, Shane Warne is, uh, without doubt, the most influential player we've had since Bradman. And Were you commentating that game that he... Where he bowled the first ball, took the wicket? No, I wasn't. Uh, I was here. Were you watching that on the TV on the car? I was, I was watching it, yes. I was watching it, indeed. I, well, I saw him play his first test here at the SCG against India. Before that, I was working on that game, but I wasn't there at the, at the time. But uh, no, he's he's been freakish. And uh, to bowl leg spin, the way he bowled, with that con- control and... Uh, penetration uh, quite remarkable and his personality of course so I think he stands out from all, all the cricketers I've, I've seen in the last 50 years from Australia and there have been plenty of other good ones you mentioned the Lily Marsh the Chapels Ponting of course and uh, McGrath McGrath and Warren as a combo of, um, devastating absolutely suffocated the opposition so um, they were a pretty good pairing what about of current times with our fast bowlers how do they compare do you well, think well they're, they're up there Cummins in particular but also Hazelwood and Stark it's a very good combination and Nathan Lyon's support role I mean for an off spinner to take almost 400 test wickets in Australia is, uh, is quite remarkable uh, and yet, he, I don't, I don't think he's the best off spinner we've ever had, but he's certainly been the most successful. Yeah, wicket keepers. We haven't really touched on wicket keepers. What about wicket keepers? Well, Marsh uh, developed into one of the best, uh, particularly standing back. His uh, acrobatic skill, some of those catches he took either side uh, were exceptional. So, 
Uh, I was I was brought up on on Wally Grout, who was a beautiful gloveman. I think Tim Payne's outstanding. Yeah. And you know Healy also, Gilchrist probably not in the class of some of the others as a wicket keeper, but because his batting was so influential, uh, you had to put him up there in a in the all rounder class, I, I guess. But uh, now we've been lucky to have a run of good wicket keepers. And, and we've tended to take the approach that you've got to pick the number one wicketkeeper rather than the English approach, which is more often than not pick someone who's going to get some runs who can keep, and uh, that hasn't always worked for them. Do you remember the first hat-trick you saw as a commentator? The first hat-trick I saw? Ooh, that's could have been Dar- Darren Goff, but I'm sure I saw one before that. Um... No, that's a good question. I, no, I, yeah, just I, I, I remember being a very young bloke when Lance Gibbs got that one in Adelaide, but I didn't see it. Uh, and there was Peter Siddle later on. Um, I'm sure there have been other hat-tricks that uh, come along, but it was the Warner hat-trick, of course. He got one at the MCG. Yep. That was later on. As, as cricketers yeah. of current times... Uh, where does Steve Smith rank oh, well, in Steve, your eyes? Steve Smith's right up there because of his uh, extraordinary uh, appetite, hunger for runs and ability to score them. I mean, he's an amazing player. Uh, you wonder what what will stop him from scoring at an average of 60 to 70 all the time. Um, but at this stage, uh, he, yeah, he's an extraordinary player. What Quite do you make? What do you make of the swashbuckling? So I guess the theatrics of the way he bats. So the ball goes past the bat, and there's a little swish of the the sword. And oh. Labuschagne's obviously taken that on board as well. Well, you know, it's a kind of a golfer's waggle. It's a, it's a kind of affectation, whatever it is. It's, it's just an easy. You know, um, He's Inspector Gadget, isn't he? That, that's the way he is. But someone will put him on his ass again, I'm sure. <laughs> like Joffre Archer next yeah, summer. He might knock him on his ass. you're right. He might. That is for sure. Uh, the, 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 the game that's coming up, or the test series that's coming up, what are your, what are your thoughts there? Um, well, first of all, I let's think, go I think your... India, India need to score first blood to yeah. keep the series going, because I'm, I'm not convinced about their batting against our bowling. As, as much as I am convinced about our batting against their bowling, but I say that with a cautionary word at the moment because Warren is not playing and there's a bit of this and that and who's going to play at the top of the order which could expose us if Boomerah and Shami get it right. Well, I listened to your commentary yesterday on the, uh, on the ABC. I was out walking here in, oh, yeah. in Randwick. Oh, yeah. And Joe Burns, you came into the commentary box and gave your views about Joe Burns. At the time, he'd just entered the, uh, the arena. Yeah. And he obviously got out for one LBW, unfortunate for him. Well, yes, he didn't look very convincing before that either. What, what do we do, though, for the first test, though? Where, where, who do we open up with? Well, it all depends um, on Cameron Green's fitness, I think, if he's fit to play then you're going to push up Labuschagne to, to open. I think that's your best option at the moment. Uh, in the hope that Bukowski and Warner will be right at some point in the second or third test 
to play. Now then you're going to have a problem about what you do with the rest of the order and it may well be that someone like Wade gets pushed out if he hasn't got runs to keep green in. So they've got a few options. I'm not too sure which way it's going to break, but Labuschagne appears to be the man for all seasons. He can handle almost everything. Uh, I'm I'm, I'm, I'm never convinced about stopgap openers, but in the circumstances, uh, to fit all these players in, yeah. that may be the best outcome, at, at least at the start of the series. Who's the unluckiest player for Australia at the moment, not being selected? Um, I'm not sure about that. They may have applied more in the, the days of a, a Stuart Law and a Martin Love, Darren Lehman, when they weren't selected. Um, there's a couple of bowlers like Pattinson and Nisa are on the fringe. Um, they're probably a bit unlucky. I, I don't think Nathan Lyon is is, is threatened um, by anyone. Swepson's bowled okay, but um, yeah, we're not talking about Shane Warne at this point. And Zampa's probably not at, uh, at no, that I don't. level. Zampa should play Shield cricket. Yeah. I think they should pick him, but um, they want to go with this other young bloke. Pope, uh, he's a bit of a fledgling at the moment. So, yeah. Um, who's the okay? Then who's the player that really buggered up their opportunity? Then had every opportunity and just didn't make make the most well, of it. Well, the one who's buggering up his opportunity to an extent at the moment, just off the top of my head, is Nick Maddinson. I mean, there was a wonderful opportunity yesterday to get in and make some. What did he finish with? Got 14, and oh, you know, so. he got out to a loose shot to quarter point. I heard him at 10. The other so bloke, the, uh, McDermott, took his chance, put his head down, and ground out a score. Um, you know, in, in, in the uh, longer term, that, that might prove to be quite handy for him if they're looking around for yeah. another player. Uh, I don't know whether he's necessarily up to that level, but you know, that's what they said about uh, Labuschagne few years ago that you couldn't possibly pick him to play for Australia. He's not good enough. Well, he's proved everyone wrong. And now you couldn't you couldn't but pick him. Well, that's right. So, you know, it's about getting opportunities and, and, and taking them. And he's, he's certainly done that. Whereas Maddinson, for various reasons, um, and there's always excuses, but I've seen a lot of his batting and he can play. But he ain't got the head for it, I'm afraid. And uh, the more it goes, the less likely it seems to me that he's going to get that chance because um, he's not doing justice to his, uh, his ability. Very disappointing. Yeah, OK. Uh, the upcoming series, though, with India, we'll just reflect back on that very quickly. Uh, yeah. What are you excited about this? This, I mean, for, for, I guess for, for the lay person, just having live sport after such... Well, just having a test match. We yeah. haven't had one since January. Uh, and with a pink ball and uh, you know, the speculation about how much grass they'll have on the pitch. And, Is it a day-night? Uh, yeah, yeah day-night day game in Adelaide. And India have only played one of those games ever, and that was against Bangladesh. So I, I suppose they're a bit challenged, uh, given that Australia have won all seven of the pink ball games that they've played. Um, but if it, if it is a bit sideways for a couple of days, it could be a lottery, just as the first game Australia played under the lights with the pink ball against New Zealand was a few years ago when uh, a partnership between Lyon and Neville was the difference between the teams. And that was controversial in itself because Lyon was clearly out, given not out, 
early on. So, um, yeah, I'm not too sure how it's going to break, but I, I tend to think that if it's, there's going to be some wearing down, we might be a bit better equipped yep. with the discipline and quality of our bowling than India, but uh, I, I wouldn't be I wouldn't be writing them off, particularly with players around Kohli in, in his first test, like Pujara, yep. who uh, was pretty hard to dismiss last time he was here. They've, they've got some quality batting, um, but uh, they, they might find the, the Australian pace attack a bit of a handful if uh, if the conditions are, are right for them. If there's the if there's that pace and bounce in some of the pitches, and that's not always the case in Australia anymore. Anyway, they tend to be pretty flat pitches. A lot of them. Uh, speaking of controversy, yesterday you were mentioning that we were just talking about the swing of the ball when you were mentioning that maybe what you were waiting for the Vaseline to rub off and there was ah, a bit, ah. of, bit of banter around the Vaseline. Yeah, well, that's uh, what it was. A as, bit of banter. Strange enough, though, as soon as you mentioned that, it just took me back to, and you know at some point I was going to bring this up, where the the sandpaper issue. Oh, yeah, well, that was clumsy, wasn't it? What did that achieve? I, mean, I, I couldn't understand all of that. Obviously, Australia had been freaking around with the ball and... Uh, sort of on the margins, but it, not alone in that. But perhaps they've just gone a bit too far. And um, I don't know. I blame Darren Lehman for a bit of that. If he'd um, he just say, oh, "We're only doing what they were doing," but it's probably not that the showed the uh, the naivety and immaturity of Steve Smith's leadership. He didn't he, he didn't manage all of that very well at all, which is the reason why. Uh, there'll be some people reluctant to give him the captaincy again. The, the, the Steve Smith and both uh, and David Warner have been. David Warner can't captain again, or can't captain. Steve Smith can. Yes. Uh, do you believe that that's the right uh, decision um, to have made, or do they? They're both guilty by association. Uh, I think yeah, Warner's seen more of the Benoit than perhaps a. Uh, it should be, but um, I mean the fact is he's 34 now, so I mean in, in another year or two we will have moved on. So um, yeah, I don't, I don't see him beyond the Ashes next year, having much of uh, a role to, role to play as an Australian player. I think uh, other than white ball cricket, we may have moved on, and yeah, we'll, we'll see. But there's a transition coming. Yeah in Australian cricket and there are quite a few people that won't be there be on the ashes next year and you know who knows if Tim Payne will be there next year who, who do you think outside of Steve Smith could be the next Australian captain ah uh, well potentially Pat Cummins so that, uh, now, now you're talking because when Pat we had Pat on we'll get to the primary club soon but we had obviously we had Pat on that Zoom call yeah yeah, uh, yeah, yeah with yeah. yourself and Matt DeGroote and yes. uh, others and uh, we bought the lads chipped together and bought a pair of Pat Cummins boots. Oh, well done. So, one to keep... Thank you for uh, your generosity. Well, no, Nathan was the uh, the architect of yeah, that. Yeah, right. And uh, one to keep, obviously, for, for prosperity, and the other one to drink out of. Right. So where, we, where are they now? Have you got them? Well, we've got the boots, I believe. I think they're at Nathan's at the moment, but we, right we'll, we'll probably have a what's more commonly known as a shoey at some point so, uh, with one of Pat's boots. Do so you think he could be captain? Yeah, he is. The only problem with fast bowlers, captains, is that uh, you know they can get injuries. Uh, or all, all bowlers sort of in their own heads in their game, and 
that's why they don't necessarily make an ideal captains. But you know, he might be the exception. Uh, Courtney Walsh was an outstanding captain for the West Indies for some time. So uh, if he's the the obvious choice at the time, well, why not? I don't know where else they're going. Yeah. Maybe you know, maybe the the captain after next, as it were, for Australia is not even in the team at this stage. Yeah, it possibly. might be someone like uh, Alex Carey. I'm I'm not too sure how that's going to break, but uh, uh, yeah, you, might be Will Pukowski if he ever gets a chance to play. What do you think of him as a player? Well, he's obviously an outstanding player. It's just unfortunate that he's had all these his head injuries through various things occurring. Either via football or wherever, there you go. Um, you talk about head injuries. Have you ever seen as many as what you have in the last few years? Because it seems that there's a lot more. It's a lot more prevalent in today's game. With and but batters are wearing helmets and they're still getting hit. Yeah, well, it's, it's a bit the the, nat- the nature of the the game. People, a combination of. Um, thinking that they're protected with a, a helmet and don't watch the ball and uh, this uh, need to uh, uh, take on the short bowling which um, quite a few do so um, yeah maybe there needs to be a change of approach um, because the fact that you've got a helmet on doesn't protect you necessarily from sustaining some form of injury well we did unfortunately we saw that yeah as so... we are seeing so you know, um, when um, when guys like Ian Chappell were, were, were playing and never wore a helmet uh, and were never hit in the head, maybe he was a, he, he was a bit lucky, but most of it was skilled because he watched the ball. Well, Sonal Gavaskar and both Ian Chappell were on the ABC a couple of weeks ago. Yeah. Uh, and they were both talking about this particular topic and how you made mention is they, they didn't wear helmets, mm. or certainly Ian didn't. And, but you're right, his hand-eye coordination was just... He, he watched the ball a lot more than what the players seem to at the moment because they had that cavalier attitude of having to take on that fast bowler. Well, they feel the need to do it. You know, It's, it's the sort of combative nature of the game these days that um, you, know, you take the bowling on. You know, how often are you seeing batsmen duck, weave and just grind? I mean, it's, it's pretty rare. There's just, it's an expectation when fellas bat that uh, you know, nine times out of ten, they will take on the short bowling at some point. Um, you got to go back in Australia's cricket to someone like Steve Waugh, who just decided to take no risk and get out of the way of them. But uh, that doesn't seem perhaps as the white ball influence on the game to, to be the way that they're playing. And that's all very exciting to watch, but uh, you know it brings a degree of risk yeah. Uh, to yourself and to your innings um, by playing in that way. What do you think the Philip Hughes incident did to, did for cricket? Uh, obviously, tragic well, it, as, or, as it was. It, it potentially damaged it, and that's why we're having this conversation about people being hit and the rest of it. Uh, it was a tragic accident, and you have to accept the fact that in a, in a game where there's a missile flying around, you know, people will get hit as... Cameron Green was the other day I, yeah. I, and that's another reason why the bats I think a bit like some of those metal drivers in golf need to be curbed I th- think they're more dangerous weaponry for the bowler and the umpire as much as for the bloke who's on strike um, 
than they than they should be. So I, I, I think they should um, do, do something about it. But I mean, the manufacturers normally win the argument, and they've certainly done that on the golf course. Well, were you surprised to see umpires wearing helmets? No, not at all. Uh, I was surprised that Jared Bird wasn't wearing a helmet <laughs> when the with the red ball game. He seems seems to be for the white ball only. I would have thought it's just as dangerous in the in the red ball game. But anyway, that that's his choice. But yeah, uh, I'm not surprised. I was at the, I forget the guy's name name now in grey cricket. He started doing it some time ago because he got hit and he got a bad fracture. So he yeah. Um, you just don't have the time to re- to react. No, not the way they hit it these uh, days either. The trampoline effect of the ball off the bat these days, yeah. So uh, the, it, it needs to be sorted. The greatest hundred that you've seen while commentating? <sighs> greatest hundred. I don't know. I mean, Lara's name keeps coming to mind when you talk about great scores, great hundreds. He's batting in the West Indies in 1999. Those back-to-back scores, the double hundred in Jamaica, and then the one that won the game in Barbados. It's pretty hard to beat those two innings. Um, Were you here for Steve Waugh when he had he tore his hamstring, and he, I think it was, it was like oh, in England when he was struggling in England and. The, Got that hundred at the Oval, or you mean the no, one, the one here at the SCG? I think. Oh where well, that, that's a famous hundred, made more so by the fact that he's hit the last ball of the day for four. Um, but um, I, I wouldn't say that was a, a great, altogether great one. Not, not as great as uh, as some of the others. Uh, goodness gracious, Bob Barber's one hundred and eighty-five was one of the the best. At, innings I've seen in a, a test match and he was in sublime touch Greg Chappell's 100 at Lords in 1972 um, when Massey got 16 wickets uh, was uh, significant but it tends to be pushed to one side because of Massey's achievement so that leads me to my next question I was just about to say the greatest bowling spell you've seen I assume Shane Warne's got to be somewhere in there. It could be any one of Warne's spells somewhere. <laughs> uh, Lily's performance that rest of the world game I was watching on TV in the day took eight for 29. And the rest of the world were batting again before lunch. Farouk Engineer got out twice before lunch. <laughs> I remember That's a bad day to crease, isn't it? Yes. That's a bad that, day. But that was pretty exceptional. I'll let this car go past then. Yeah, that's uh, all right. Drift back in. Uh, um... Bowling spells, goodness gracious. There have been a lot of them. Those, the performance by England and Trent Bridge in, in 2015, yeah. With Jimmy Anderson? Anderson and Broad. Broad, Broad yeah. took eight for 15, yeah. didn't he? Yeah. Incredible spell. Thousands of big bowling performances. And... Uh, but they don't all, all come to mind in, in a trust. I mean, I was at Lord's in 1972. I'd been playing cricket over there, and I saw most of Massey's 16 wickets, so that was pretty exceptional. Unbelievable. Yeah. Uh, he swung it late, and they didn't know what, what was going on. They couldn't work it out. Do you think there's a big difference in the, the, the balls these days to what, you know, from yesteryear? 
Well, there seems to be a difference between the Duke's Ball and the Kookaburra, and that has as much to do with the uh, conditions of atmospheric conditions and the, and the pitch, I suppose. And that Vaseline uh, you talk about? Yeah. I don't know whether the Kookaburra ball is as, a, as good a cricket ball as it was. Um, but um, you have to ask bowlers about that. It's, it's how it feels in the hand and all those sort of things. But it seems to me the best cricket ball we had was the one that um, had a, a slightly more pronounced seam in in 70. Rodney Hogg's first year when he took 42 wickets in that series against England. That just had a slightly more prominent seam, closer to the the seam on a, a GX ball. Uh, it's a bit it's a bit flatter these days, um, but you know you you got to keep the balance in the game. And you have people talking <clears throat> today about man, they should change the LBW law so any time the ball's hitting the stumps, you're out. I mean. Batting's a bit of a terminal occupation if you have a pitch that's doing anything or very skillful bowling. As much as the batsmen have um, got things going a bit more for them with these bats, but um, when the ball's doing a bit, and there's an inclination now for most blokes to to stand and, and blast it, and uh, <clears throat> even with these big bats, these guys are in trouble. So it's a con- continual um, quest. To try and produce conditions that give both an equal chance, yeah. and uh, unfortunately, a, a lot of the time in recent years, we've produced too many pitches. I think that have given bowlers very, very little op- op- opportunity as the, as the game's gone on. But because the game is so combative, and there's such a desire to uh, to get get on with it, to um, uh, well, I suppose that you're take, taking more risks than they used to. Used to play a lot more conservatively and wait for things to happen. Now you make things happen, so yeah, batsmen are more inclined to play shots that'll get them out. You talk about equal opportunity, the DRS system, what's your view on the DRS? Oh, well, it's, it's saved the umpires to a large extent. I mean, it, if you're going down this road of using technology, you want to make sure that technology is good and then uh, it's getting better and better. So uh, I, I think it, it has been beneficial to the game. Um, and we've, I, we've gone past the point now in major cricket of uh, just saying accept the umpire's decision and get on with it. We want the umpire's decision to, to be 99.9% correct and DRS has, has to a large extent allowed that to happen. Do you think that's taken away from the romance of the game, though, where an umpire makes a decision, if they get it right, they get it right, they get it wrong, it's just, it's just the way the... It's just, look, it's how the game's evolved. I think you just have to accept that. What's your favourite game to to commentate on? The test, the one-days, the... Oh, test, test cricket leaves the other stuff for dead. One-day cricket uh, can be good. T20s, well, I, I, I'm not a T20 fan. Not a big bash fan? It's too much of it. It's, it's just shit cricket, most of it. So, <laughs> nah. No, test matches. Test, ma- <laughs> test matches are something to favour. Uh, to to, to savour, sorry. Um, <clears throat> and, uh, yeah, just the expression of skill and character, all those things, uh, are more 
um, embraced by the uh, the notion of Test match cricket than any other form. So, uh, but all cricket is good. Yeah. You know, whether whether you're down the park watching last man stands, I mean, just to see people playing. And the the great thing about cricket is that uh, it offers you so many varieties, so many moods, uh, and for that reason, it's a special game. What's the fastest test you've seen, as in time? So you, you turn up to, to the commentary box on a Thursday afternoon or Thursday morning, ready for the test, and it's finished Finished by when? Well, the one at Trent Bridge in 2015 was pretty fast. <laughs> it was pretty quick, wasn't it? And there's been a few in Perth going back that have ended before lunch on the third day, so... <laughs> Um, do you get paid? Of course, you still get paid for the five days. I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> you should maybe check that, Jim. Uh, primary, uh, the primary club of Australia. You're, you're the president of that. Yeah. And yeah. I, I'm lucky enough with uh, a, a lot of my mates, my good mates here in Sydney, that we play that on a regular basis. Yes, we had a good day uh, Sunday before last. I had two primary club teams playing, and one of them was playing against my. My other uh, involvement with cricket, Eastern Suburbs Cricket Club. So uh, yeah, that was a, a special uh, event, the inaugural city and suburban game between East's uh, Pacers, the sixth team, um, and the primary club up at Waverley Oval. I don't think Waverley Oval had ever had a city and suburban game played there before. So all of that was good, yes. So you've been president for how many years now? Of the primary club, well, must be about 12 years. What made you get into that? What made you accept that role as president? Uh, well, I suppose it was a sense of making a contribution, but I was on the committee for a while, and um, um, the um, the previous president, Bruce Collins, and I'd, I'd been a member of the primary club since it started in 1974, so I was always around it and and then from that time on, obviously, they, they were looking for someone to take over from Bruce, and so I kind of got uh, appointed, anointed, whatever, to that uh, that that role. And um, a bit like Eastern Suburbs, you know, it's, it's, it's more of a, a sort of titular role than hands-on, um, working your ass off um, all the time to, to make the thing work. But, uh, you know, you try to make the contribution that... Uh, maintains or improves the the profile of the organisation because it's something you um, you believe in. And uh, as far as the primary club is concerned, we're lucky that in the last few years, a lot of younger people have come onto the committee and made it a more dynamic organisation than perhaps it was. And given that you know organisations like the primary club and and to a large extent Eastern Suburbs Cricket. Are run by volunteers. Yeah, uh, it's it's hard work to coordinate it all to make sure you get some continuity of uh, leadership and energy that is required to produce the results. And there's a lot more the primary club can do, I think, to enhance its reputation. But having said that. There's a lot of charities out there yeah, that is true. Who, who want a piece of everyone's pie, so and that's the challenge. I think we're lucky with people like uh, Andy Wildblood and Nathan Ray, yeah. and just to name a couple. Yes, we that, are. You, you know, you talk about them contributing their time and their yep. their love for the game. I mean, I, I play with you know Damien Langley, Ewan Robertson, Greg Stark, uh, Phil James, 
uh, myself, I can't call myself a cricketer after the worst game of cricket in my life. Tuesday week ago, playing for the primary club in the last man stands comp. You didn't go to primary, did you? Oh, no, I didn't. I just had, Jim, I don't want to talk about it. It's, it literally it was the worst game in the history of my cricketing career. But uh, you, you get the likes of all those guys, and the contribution they make is just, it's, it's so awesome that they, they, they share their time. And you're right, there's a lot of charities out there, but the, for some reason, the primary club just seems to have a, a lot of people behind it. You know, well, we're, yes, that's great we're support of the cricketers. But it also has at cricket at 11, more than one 11, of course. And that, that's, that's fantastic that they're actually participating in, in it as well as creating uh, opportunities for funds to be gathered to give to deserving organisations. And obviously for the primary club, it raises money for underprivileged and yeah. disadvantaged children. Yeah, it's uh, it's a, it's a great cause, that's for sure. Yeah, uh, we'll start heading towards a Dudley. Uh, yes, you know, I'm getting thirsty. Yeah, you must be too. I am. I might, I might have to sort of pop in and buy you buy your beer, Jim. But um, you're allowed to. Absolutely, there's no well, doubt about well, I that. I can buy you one too. You know. No, no, no. That's going to be my pleasure. Uh, as commentators go, uh, did you ever deal with the likes of Richie Benno? Oh, many times. Um, and obviously, you know, more so, more so in his later years because he was the twelfth um, man for the primary club after Sir Roden Cutler correct, moved yeah. on. Um, Richie was the man, so in that respect, we had a bit to do with each other. And uh, also, there were a number of times where I was uh, introducing or interviewing him at cricket functions. Um, one memorably at, at Lords for the Carbine Club in London. 2009 that would have been but yeah over the last uh, 15 years or so we formed a, a, a good association uh, I remember playing golf with him one day too but um, I, I'd known him sort of off and on over the, the period that uh, I'd been involved as a you know from the, when I was a commentator and I remember watching him when I was a kid playing the game um, so yeah yeah there's a connection which continues with uh, his um, his widow Daphne, yeah. who comes along to primary club functions. Commentators like Kerry O'Keefe, do you roll your eyes when he comes and sit next to you, and just think, for the love <laughs> of Christ, can you please not, you know, yeah, well, I, I destroy think... the commentary box for what it's worth? <laughs> he has yeah. the ability to do that. Well, oh, he's he's a funny man. He's got a good sense of humour. He's also got a pretty sharp mind when it comes to analysing the game, and he does his homework. He's very conscientious. So is he, I don't think he, he wants to be seen as just a clown. Um, he's more than that. He's, he's a very worthwhile cricket commentator, and uh, it's great to see that he's doing his bit with Fox and uh, clearly in, enjoying it, and I'm sure um, the punters are too. How much longer do you think you'll commentate for? Oh, I can't say. Someone will tap me on the shoulder if I don't fall over. So, can, actually, that's a, I guess that's a point. You recently had a, uh, a bit of an illness. Yeah, it's uh, four years now. Yeah, four yeah, years ago. Yeah. Um, you had a stroke. I did. Uh, did. That didn't inhibit your commentary at all, in the sense of your voice? and. I luckily, um, as I recovered from it, uh, I didn't. Yeah, I, I wasn't as affected as I, as I might have been. 
I still I still have moments where I'm, my brain's a bit phased, get a bit weary, a bit tired, but, you know, I'm, it's a bit like talking to your golf pro and you, um, you're, an, you're angered, frustrated by what's going on. And so he, he just turns to you and says, you've got to realise, Jim, you're getting older. So it does happen. Very wise words, very wise words. Was there a moment there where you thought you wouldn't commentate again? Oh, in the... Initial stages? In the, in the immediate aftermath of being in a hospital, I, I had no idea what was going to happen. So, uh, yeah, I suppose the thought went through my mind that, hmm, uh, yeah. But, it, it, you know, I, I made a, a pretty strong recovery in terms of my voice, more so than my um, right-hand side, which is it's still a bit affected. And uh, unfortunately, you know, trying to play golf is is a bit difficult these days. Trying to play like I used to play anyway. So, what was your handicap, Jim? Uh, it's about twelve or thirteen when I had the stroke. But yeah, I played down in single figures when I was younger. So I was just like a lot of golfers, just sort of slowly going up. But you know, I, I had some control over what I was doing. Yeah. And uh, the, put- the, 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 the putter is your, your best friend. What was the nemesis of your game? The nemesis? Of your, of your golf game? The stroke was. <laughs> yeah, there we go. Uh, what do you think the success of your longevity in commentary has been? Oh, did I? The voice has to have something to do with it because it's the voice, you, you could speak anywhere in the world and oh, people well, would recognise it. The, longevity is due to a large part in the fact that the ABC has continued to support me and give me the opportunity and that continues now where I seem to be the person who's kind of carrying the broadcast and they're struggling for whatever reason it might be to find a sort of successor as it were and there are a number of people out there who are quite capable of doing the job but um, uh, having sort of been in and out and round about cricket commentary over many years when there are other people on the stage and various agendas uh, all of a sudden in the last 20 years but I am the last man standing yes you you are (laughs) Uh, the the likes of Brett Brett Sprigg coming through Uh, yeah good man yeah good good man man. his brother Travis is very good friends with uh, Damien Langley and All right. we know Travis uh, through Is Travis a cricketer? Oh, I guess we all think we are I actually don't know to be brutally honest actually, He's in Jim. Perth is he? He's in Perth yeah, yeah. and uh, we catch up with Trav every now and again but uh, Brett's obviously joined the team and, and doing quite well What advice do you give to the, the up and coming? Uh, give the score take a deep breath Same as what you got Pause and tell them what's going on Essentially, is silence important when you're commentating? Uh, pause, pause and using the crowd is very, very important. Otherwise, uh, it, it tends to overwhelm the audience because we've got so much information out there on screens. You know, people sending in messages, stats, uh, and then there's the game. So yeah, we just uh, forget there, that. There yeah. are there are times when. Um, commentators need to let the game breathe. Yes. It's forgotten.
Well, I can only but say this has been an absolute pleasure. I was, I, when, when Nathan spoke to me on Friday and said, look, we've managed to secure the services of Mr. Maxwell, <laughs> I was incredibly well, it's, chuffed. Yeah, it's been very nice to have the chat. And I appreciate What are you going to do with this chat now? Well, it's going to go on to the Aussie Uber podcast, and I'm sure you'll, uh, I'm sure you'll spruik the uh, the podcast when you're, uh, you know, mid mid conversation in Adelaide. Um, What's, be, does it have a title? It has, it's, does. It's just Aussie Uber. Aussie, I was like your number plate. Like this, yeah. So it's A U S I E Uber, and it's a podcast that is primarily designed to uh, have passengers tell their stories. But every now and again, I get a celebrity into the car. You know, so if you get the Prime Minister in the car, do you interview him? Well, I'm going to, yeah, at some point. Uh, okay, that's a good question. If you were to refer me to the next person that I would have in the car, who's someone that I could tap on the shoulder and say, uh, I'd like you to jump in the car on the back of Jim's recommendation? Who do we Who do we, Who do do we? we go to next? Oh, you want to get people like Geraldine Doog and Lee Sales, I reckon. That's oh, just yeah. off the top of my head, yeah. Very well, interesting. Well, if I, if, I, if, I, if I need to, Jim, I'll tap you on the shoulder to get their numbers. Yeah, yeah. Well, I don't have their numbers to <laughs> Slightly yeah. problematic then. I kind of can find them somehow, but yeah, that's just off the top of my head. Uh, thinking of, of people who've got something to say. Yeah, no, fair enough. Well, this is what you want. That's what we want. That's yeah, what we yeah, want. Yeah, yeah. Now, we've arrived at Dudley. I'm going to We have. I'm going to have a beer with you. Now, what I do as well for all of my celebrity guests yeah. is I've got a gift for you. Have you now really? I hope you read books. Well, on the plane there's a book for you to read and it's called the book's called A Fortunate Life. Now you may have By read it. Albert Facey. Albert Facey. It's my all time favourite book. Well I, re- I read this many years ago but you've, you've given me a chance to read it again. Yeah so it's my very good book. My yes. go to book that I read once a year. I read that going to Perth I'd say 30 years ago, at least. Yeah. Might be 40 years. This was written in the 80s. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I I got given it when I was 17 years old, so Uh nearly 32 years ago. And it's my my go-to book that I read once a year, and it's my gift to you. That's very kind of you. Thank you. I really do appreciate your time, and I look forward to listening to you over the course of the next, uh, hopefully, five days in Adelaide. Well, hopefully five, but... um, What do you think is going to happen? I wouldn't be surprised if the ball whips around a bit and we get a quick game, but uh, you know the other side of it with the pink ball is if, if it loses its sex appeal. Well, just let me out here. Yeah, I'll let you out here, Jim. But um, we'll come in for a beer. Yeah, we'll come in. I'll just find a park and I'll come um, in. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. You can never predict these things, but you suspect that if the ball's doing anything. Under the lights and the rest of it, wickets will fall. Absolutely. Well, it's been my pleasure, Jim. Christian, let me park the car and I'll come and have a beer with you. I'll be, be in that back bar. I'll be finding you. Don't worry. You're right. It won't be hard to find you. No problem. Thank you for that. Thank you, Jim. I appreciate it, mate. That was awesome. Well, I don't know. I, I that, that was Jim Maxwell, and I tell you what. I've been lucky enough to have a few people in my car, some celebrities, Hugh Rimmington, Fitzy, Ben Hansaker, Mel Schillings, Olivia Vivian, to name a few. And I think, being the cricket tragic that I am in the sense that I love the game, and I love everything it stands for, that was probably my favourite. 
absolutely my favourite. He's an absolutely, just a gentleman, a, a true gentleman, he really is. So I am going to pop in and have a, have a beer with him. I've got to be at the gym in 45 minutes, but I'm going to go and have a beer with Jim Maxwell and just, uh, just say thanks for sharing his time and his, his love for the sport. So uh, that's the end of that awesome, awesome episode. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. I did love that, uh, that chat with Jim. So I look forward to sharing. I hope you enjoyed that episode as much as I did recording it for you. It's been a special one for me today. To all those primary club people out there, keep the amazing work up that you're doing. To Pat Cummins, who's one of the ambassadors, along with a few others. Thank you so much for the work you do. It does go to, to those kids that need that little bit of support, that little bit of help. And that's what the primary club's all about, is just uh, offering that and paying it forward. To Jim, thank you so much. Uh, that, was, uh, that was just super special. Thank you so much to everybody for listening. Take care.